You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. It's in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then I also love that it tacks on, do it with gentleness and respect. Two things scripture is telling us there, though, it tells us that we are to have a reason for the hope that we have. And then it also tells us the way in which we are doing need to do that. So apologetics, if you didn't tune in with us on either of the ones we did last time, I'm going to ask my husband to jump in on these with me. But what we are meaning, I'm sort of taking a broad definition here of apologetic. So apologetics is just, you know, the fancy word for a reasoned argument for your faith. But as it relates to your kids, but I want even people that don't have kids to hear this because we need to be reminded of the reason for the hope that we have. So we did before a general overview of apologetics last season, and we also did the last one we did was a what is the gospel, which is super important. I've actually heard from some of you guys that actually listen to that with your kids, which I think is so great. But those are just really good reminders. So today we are going to focus on essential doctrines of the faith, and this one kind of stemmed out of sort of a sermon we heard at church where our pastor was talking about how important it is for us to really know what the essentials are. Don't learn those from other places, but really knowing in your Bible what the essentials are. And my husband, Chris, then he just decided to sort of take a take our kids through sort of a tour of what the essentials are in our family devotions. And so he kind of walked them through what these seven essentials, he picked seven that are just what we really wanted to our kids to know that they know. So we're going to walk through some of those today. And thanks for joining me. Say hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I think you I, you guys have seen the pictures on Instagram that like I literally I uh, podcast in my closet. Yep, sure do. So Chris, where do you want to start as we look at the essential doctrines of Christian faith? Well, first of all, I have to say it is way intimidating to be sitting here and (laughs) trying to come up with the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And like, I have any business coming up with a list like that. So you guys listening, you may say, you know, why is that? What about this one? Or you haven't talked about that. And I could never argue that. So these were just the seven that I came up with for taking our family through. And I think that it's a good list. The last time we did the Kitchen Table Apologetics, we were talking about the essentials of the gospel message. And we really tried to make that super simple so that it was easy to share with your kids. This one, we're obviously talking about like hardcore doctrine, right? So we're going to be using probably some bigger words. But I think that's good. Number one, I think it's fine to expose our kids, even at really young ages, to a broad vocabulary. I think that's a good thing. And plus, hopefully it'll give you an opportunity to, to really talk about these things with your kids and what do some of these words mean and, and you know how does it apply to me? I love that you mentioned that because we just are never going to feel like the experts in any of this. And I'm sure 
there's probably a lot of you out there that are going, well, I don't know if I've ever really thought about these things. Just don't let that be intimidating because the whole purpose that we want to do this is, is just so that you turn the pages of your Bible and you actually get into it and you look at these things. But really knowing where it comes from in Scripture is is so important for us to know and so important for your kids. You know, if you've got kiddos that are going to be heading off to college, we, we have one of those that's going to be going off to college not too long. And taking advantage of every opportunity you have to be building them up in the word. So, and as as gets talked about often on this podcast, it's all about the word because that's where these things come from. These are not just ideas that have been made up by man. And so with each of these, I'm going to go through seven of them. With each of these, there's going to be a whole bunch of scripture that goes with it. Some of it we'll read, some of it maybe we'll just throw in the notes for you. But when we did this with our kids, what I had them do was I would kind of have each of the boys with their Bibles and I would say, okay, you know, Evan, I want you to look up this passage and Caden, I want you to look up this passage and Brennan, I want you to look up this passage. And then I brought it up and then I had them each read with their own eyes, in their own Bibles, these passages. And I think that's really important. When we we talk about the essentials, these are some passages that you're going to want to mark because you want to know where that is. Just like it said in First Peter that we want to be prepared. This is a way of being prepared and studying these scriptures for ourselves. So, so mark these things. And yes, like he said, we're going to put these things in the notes too so that you guys can have these. You can print them off and, you know, do your own study on this. I really encourage you to do that. So, all right, here so we go. here we go. Number one, human depravity, which again, kind of a, a, a strange term that we don't really use a whole lot. But what are we talking about there? We simply mean that man is not basically good in the humanist mindset that says that, you know, man is good at his core and gets corrupted by society. I always laughed at that a little bit because it's like, well, who comprises society? It's a bunch of people. But man is not basically good. Man is basically evil. And even though that doesn't sit well with the popular culture today, and sadly, even many churches across our nation, the Bible is full of passages that talk about this. And it always amazes me to talk to people who make comments like, you know, I just believe in the the basic goodness of man, or I just trust that people are are always going to do the right thing. It's like the longer that you live, how can you possibly hold that viewpoint? I mean, all you have to do is flip on the news for five minutes or open up a newspaper and read the front page and you're going to have a really hard time sticking to man is basically good. Yeah, we love, I think in, in girls and women in our circles, it's, it's oh, they have such a good heart. They have such a good heart. Yeah, they really don't. They really don't. But we say that, don't we? I mean, I'm sure there's, it's probably on a pillow and a mug somewhere that we just have good hearts and we really don't have a good heart. So Romans chapter 3, verse 23, classic passage in the New Testament from Paul that touches on this which says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I love what our pastor will say there, that the word for all there in the Greek means all. (laughs) All have sinned. And in fact, even just a bit earlier in that chapter, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, which in verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not mincing words there. I like this one for a slightly different reason. So this is Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's an interesting one, especially because I know that there are some people out there who believe that, well, you're born sinless, and then it's sort of the corruptible side effect of the world that changes us. But that's really not what the Bible is saying here. I mean, David in the psalm here is even saying, when I was conceived, I was sinful. And of course, we believe that going back to the fall of man, that changed the state of the world forever and put everything in a fallen state, both Adam and Eve at that moment and all of the men and women that would come after them throughout all of human history. So there it is. Human depravity, really important one. It just kind of gives us the backdrop on really what all these other ones, there's some really great news here, but we have to know that part first. You have to be able to recognize that we are sinners, that we are not basically good, and seeing there in Scripture, Scripture is true and right, and the God who created us knows exactly just how bad we really are. So that one's just a really important one. I love that Chris picks that one to go first because I think it just gives us a really good backdrop to all of this. And it, it is easy, I think, perhaps you're listening to this and there's even a part of you that this particular essential doctrine is not sitting well with because it's like, well, gosh, that's so harsh, you know, that, that man is sinful and even at birth, you know. But I think, you know, it's interesting, First John sort of addresses that spirit that can creep up in us, where he says in First John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, meaning Jesus, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So it may be difficult for you to let the truth of this doctrine just sort of sit there, but I encourage you to let the Bible be the one that judges you, not the other way around. And it's tough. I get it. It doesn't necessarily feel good, but ultimately it is what the word says. Okay, number two. Number two, the exclusivity of God. See, we're like all about all these big words. So sorry. Yeah. So human depravity, number one. Number two, exclusivity of God. Yeah. And so what do we mean by that? Well, before we get to that, let's maybe read a couple passages. So Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to look at a couple passages from Isaiah right next to each other here. But uh, the first one is Isaiah 43.10. And that says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. 
And then one chapter over, chapter 44, verse 6, says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. This might seem in some ways like kind of a, I don't know if academic is the right word or more of a scholar, like the exclusivity of God. Why is that such an essential? And when I hear this and I hear these scriptures, I think why this one just sits with me is, yep, this has got to be one of those that you know that you know, because right now, especially culturally, there seems to be just kind of a denial that there is God. We've talked a lot about it as a family that there is just certain things that you can even go back 50 years that you could have people of very diverse opinions on lots of things. But at the end of the day, they shared a common value that there was God. There was this exclusivity of God that scripture talks about that was kind of not argued as much. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in our country, in the years following 9-11, A lot of damage was done to the exclusivity of God because there was this backlash against Muslims. And to try to counteract that, you had a lot of prominent figures, political figures. I think I remember President Bush saying Mm -hmm. this at one time, but certainly other pastors and just religious thinkers saying things like, God... Allah, these are all All the same same being. We just, the cultures have different names for the same being. And when we talk about the exclusivity of God, we are talking not about Allah and the others. We're, We're talking about Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And what we're saying is, no, there is no other God besides the God of the Bible. These other little g gods that are talked about by other cultures are false gods. Yeah. I And you're going to probably hear on each one of these that we list, there's sort of going to be a, a little lie that you've probably heard from the world that directly is an affront to one of these doctrines. With the human depravity, you know, that's the whole man is basically good. This one, the exclusivity of God. There's lots of God. Allah is God. And, you know, no, those are things that we want to know ourselves and we want to be teaching our kids and and standing firm in the fact that, no, Allah is not God. There is one God. So next up, number three, is the deity of Jesus. Mm, I love this one. The very first verse that I'm imagining you're going to go to is John 1.1. You got it. And John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, and you know, classic passage there from the Gospels. Another, I think, great one in John is John 8, verse 58, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews, the religious leaders of that time, got so fired up by him saying that because they recognized that what he was doing was claiming to be God, that they picked up stones to stone him. And of course, with that, you do need to throw in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, telling us that Jesus is the word and Jesus is God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus makes the statement, I and the father are one. 
So again, Jesus, I, I've, I've heard some people claim that, you know, well, Jesus never actually said that he was God. And, you know, we've just given you a couple of examples right here where that's the case and, and none more clear than that one right there where he makes a, a, an absolute statement. I and God the Father are one. Yeah, and so probably the the lie you're going to hear from the world a little bit is the good teacher argument that, you know, Jesus was a good teacher, he was a good man, but he wasn't God. Yeah, and I would say whenever you're talking to another person and you're trying to get a, a read on where are they coming from religiously, you know, are they a Christian? What do they believe in? Center your discussion around the person of Jesus Christ, because only Christianity looks at Jesus truly as God. You just brought up the good teacher thing. That's the classic atheist line, right? Jesus is a good teacher. Or even some of the cults that people sort of associate with Christianity, like Jehovah's Witness, that cult believes that Jesus was an incarnation of Michael, the archangel. Mormonism, right? The the like spirit brother of Lucifer, New Age, that he was a, a guru, you know, a, a good teacher kind of thing. So it's unique to Christianity that Jesus is God. Keeping these fresh in your mind, we've had uh, human depravity, the exclusivity of God, the deity of Jesus, and the next one is the Trinity. <laughs> and oh goodness, this has got to be the hardest one. When I looked at this one on Chris's list, I was really grateful that I am not leading this discussion. And also, gals, if if you've noticed with these heavier conversations, I always pull Chris into things like this. I really, as you've heard me talk about in other podcasts, just just the covering aspect that our husbands are to us and even just the way he's modeled this teaching it to our kids. This is just something that I really tap into with him. And so even if he's not in the closet with me talking about this stuff, we talk about these things often. So, but I think nothing is more humbling really for both Chris or I, than when we see the Trinity on the list of the essentials and, and what the Bible has to say about that one. So if that one scares you a little bit, well, you're not alone. Essential doctrine number four is the Trinity. And here's a good place to point out that the actual word Trinity does not show up in the Bible. So you're not going to find a verse that says there is a Trinity and here's the definition of it. Um, this is a truth that is derived from a variety of scriptures. And don't let that shake you. And don't let somebody else who's a skeptic of Christianity talk about, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible and therefore it, it's not true. It absolutely is true, but it's just a matter of looking at these verses holistically, looking at the Bible holistically to kind of pull this out. And there are, by the way, I'd have to count out here in my notes, but I have probably more verses on this one than any of the other seven that we're going to talk about. So there's tons of biblical evidence in support of this. But let's start with Matthew 28, 19, which is right at the end of the book of Matthew. And it's a part of the Great Commission where Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them to go out and make disciples. And he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Key elements there calling out each of the three 
persons in the Trinity. Okay, the next verse that you have there, and I'll let you expound on this, Chris, but Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. It's an important concept to understand that when we talk about the Trinity, we're not talking about three separate persons, if you will. And that's really what I think that passage in Ephesians is getting at. There's one. There is a oneness, a singularity to God. And this is the thing that, you know, if what you're hoping for at the end of this few minutes of discussion on the Trinity is is an understanding, you better keep looking for a different podcast. Yeah, it, totally. Because this is something that our finite brains simply cannot grapple with. And there's helpful analogies out there. You know, you'll hear people talk about the egg, right, that has the shell and the egg white and the yolk. So when we refer to an egg, we understand that it's one thing, but there's actually three different elements that make that up. Or, you know, I've heard people talk about water, the three different states of water. You can have water as a gas, you can have water as a solid like ice, and then, of course, you know, the liquid. If that's helpful, great. It is a good illustration of what we're talking about, that they are separate in their function and in their role, but they are all one as that passage in Ephesians is telling us. So I think before we move on from the Trinity, I think that there's one more thing that is worth touching on, and that is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think as Christians, we you know are like, okay, God the Father, yay, I get that, no problem. Jesus definitely got that. The Holy Spirit, though, I, that one's just so... It's more slippery. It's hard Mm -hmm. for me to really get my mind around who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? And sometimes it maybe just feels like we just kind of toss that one in at the end. But the Holy Spirit absolutely has a function, a purpose, and we read about it several times in the New Testament. And I think one of the best places for this is in John chapter 14. And this is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking to his disciples, and in verse 25, he says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I love that passage because in that one verse, we get all three of the Trinity— the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and we see the role that the Holy Spirit plays. And that is to always continually point us back to the person of Jesus Christ. And he's telling his disciples here that he is going to remind the disciples of everything that Jesus has taught them. And we've talked about this often as it relates to even when you open your Bibles and, you know, when you are going to spend some time in the Word, how important that step. It's an often one that we forget, but asking the Spirit to show us things in His Word. His role is He he points to Jesus and the, and the truth there and how important it is to, in, to be aware of that and invite the Spirit to do that. 
The last role that we want to talk about that the Holy Spirit fills is seen in John chapter 16, starting in verse 7, which says, this is Jesus speaking, But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. So here we see that that other role of the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin. And so, you know, if, if you are a, a recent convert to Christ, you may remember back to your own experience as you were sitting there hearing the gospel message and feeling that prodding inside of you. That was the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, pointing you towards the need for Jesus. The fifth one is the humanity of Jesus. So you remember as we were just listing off, the third one we gave was the deity of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus. And I mentioned on the previous one that we use kind of some fancy words a little bit at time because we are dealing with some serious doctrines here, but none more fancy than the one I'm about to give you right now, (laughs) which is the hypostatic union. Oh, now he's lost us for sure. But hold on. This is super simple. It just is, it's really the bridge between the third one that we went over and this one. It's the notion that Jesus is simultaneously God and man. And to get even more crazy on you, since we were just talking about the Trinity, we were talking about how you can't understand that. Like it's beyond human reasoning. Well, here comes another thing. When we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we don't mean that he is 50% God and 50% man. We mean he's 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. How is that possible? Can't tell you. He's God. But it is the truth. So Chris is going to give him some scripture on where it points to that. And then maybe also if you could just kind of highlight to why, why is that important for us to understand? Yeah. Well, let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Clearly describing Jesus as a man there. Another passage that is a very familiar, famous one, but is is so key, is Philippians chapter 2, and that is starting in verse 6, where it says, "...who, being in very nature God," so now we're talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, so that would be the third essential, the deity of Jesus, "...did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing." taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Key passage there. And then one more that I think is going to get to why this all matters, and that is Galatians chapter 4. And there in verse 4, we read, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So 
the fact that Jesus was fully man is critical because that is what qualifies him to be a sacrifice on our behalf. The key thing there is that Jesus was fully man, lived on this earth as a man, and the Bible says that he was tempted in all the same ways that we are, and yet was without sin. And so that qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But the fact that Jesus was fully man and lived a sinless life qualifies him in the eyes of God the Father to be the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins. So important, though, with this essential of being, yes, fully God, Jesus is God, and Jesus is fully man, because it gives us all new texture and context to understanding that Jesus understands when those buttons get pushed, and he knows exactly where we're at. He felt all of those pains and sorrows and highs and lows that we feel. It just completes that picture so well. Okay, so there you have it. So keeping on our list, we had, we've had we had human depravity. We've had exclusivity of God. We have had the deity of Jesus. The Trinity, the humanity of Jesus. And the next one. And now Christ's atoning death and bodily resurrection. Obviously, this is a huge one. Huge, huge. Yeah, huge one. And and the verses here, you guys are going to know them well. We're, we're, we're going to talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we're going to talk just, we're just giving you guys the scriptures where these are. Obviously, if you were to take this to a fuller apologetic, a lot of times there is, they're giving reason arguments and historical even context for the crucifixion and then why we know it was real and why we know it happened. Those are really great conversations as well. So I always feel like I have to throw that disclaimer in because we are not being full-fledged apologists right here. <laughs> but we are trying to give you some context, even like delving in with the essentials, truly to go deeper into apologetics. You would be wanting to be looking at all of those, the evidences for the um, crucifixion and for the resurrection, which are really important conversations and studies to do. But we just want to do a precursory with and where the scriptures are on that. So starting in verse 8, says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked now how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." So we see there in that one little verse, both elements of what's going on here. Jesus was crucified by man, raised to life by God. Okay, so then let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And obviously, each one of these things, you know, whether we're talking about Jesus's death on the cross or the resurrection, this is central to the gospel message. You know, we talked about at the beginning that backdrop of that human depravity and that we're all sinners. Well, this one right here is, is this is the linchpin on why we aren't doomed to remain in that human depravity. And so as an essential, this is so important to understand that the crucifixion 
and Jesus's death on the cross is that, and we've, I hate to throw out another really big word, but propitiation, but that's in scripture as well, that it's that atoning sacrifice. Our pastor likes to say at one moment. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I love that description. Yeah. So the atonement is the act of Jesus on the cross of reconciling us to the Father. Our sin separated us from God. And as a result, because God cannot look on sin, he cannot be with humanity. He loves humanity and yet cannot be with humanity. And so it was the act that Jesus did on the cross that made that at one possible. It made it possible for us to be reunited with the Father in a relationship that previously our sin had damaged. You know, one of the things that you probably can pick up as you go through each one of these essentials is that our culture seeks to dismantle and discredit each one of these. And I think it's interesting in Philippians 3, Paul says, this is in Philippians 3.18, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I think that's so interesting that he chooses to use those words, the cross of Christ. He doesn't say many choose to live as enemies of Christ. And in fact, in our culture today, if you talk about Jesus, people are all good with it. Oh, he was a great teacher. He loved everyone and cared for the poor and was always looking to heal and all these things. What Paul is keying in on is it's the cross of Christ. That's what people are enemies of. Talk to me all day long about how Jesus is love, but don't talk to me about he died on the cross for my sins because that's where we're going to have a problem. And guys, this is getting so much traction. I get really shocked sometimes at the things that I read that are being purported and, and taught that our sins are not, uh, we, they're ne- not needing to be put on the cross. But instead, they say that the cross, if that's if that was true, then that would be some kind of cosmic child abuse. And they, and they actually believe this doctrine that is so demeaning to the sacrifice that Jesus did that truly is the only answer to our very first essential right there, the human depravity. But it's it's something that's totally out there, and that's why this is such an important one to know and understand the atonement, the crucifixion on the cross, and the resurrection, the truth of those things. So one more scripture for you on this one, and this kind of deals a bit with that atonement issue that Amy was bringing up. And this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Okay, we're coming on to our last one, guys, just to move through these again. We've had human depravity, exclusivity of God, the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, the humanity of Jesus, Christ's atoning death and bodily resurrection. And then our last one, we are only saved by grace through faith. So huge. Take us to the scriptures that talk about that one. Yeah, so classic passage here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
It's a tricky one because, boy, we Christians, we sure love our to-do lists and we like to think that there's something that we need to do. A lot of that out there right now, a lot of workspace. I, I shouldn't say right now. That's probably as old as man to think that we need to do something, especially when you're thinking of your eternal salvation. It would seem like, man, how can that just be something that we didn't earn, something that we've done nothing for? How should that be right? But this is an essential. I remember when I was in high school, my friend and I decided to meet with two Mormon guys that lived in his neighborhood. We were going to do like this little collaborative Bible study thing, kind of talking about, well, here's what I believe. What do you believe? And we're going back and forth. And I remember when we got to this passage, because in the Book of Mormon, and maybe it's been changed, I don't know. But at that time, the Book of Mormon tweaks this verse ever so slightly to say, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith after all we can do. Wow. And the idea, the implication is, yes, you're saved by grace, but there is an element here where you, as a good Mormon, need to do the following things. And if you don't do those things, then your salvation's probably on the line. And that is another classic example of what a cult likes to do, which is take something that the Bible says and then add just a few things to it a few good works. You got to do a few good works. You got to ride the bicycle around and, you know, knock on doors or whatever in order to be saved. And yeah, this comes up often in the New Testament. Galatians is all about this, guys. If you join us for our Galatians Bible study, this is the issue that the Galatians were really struggling with. They couldn't get their heads around that they weren't required to have works that and and for them it was following the law and all the points of the law and being circumcised and all the things and maybe we don't have to go through all of the old testament laws and think that those are the things we need to do but we very much today have so many messages on what our work should look like, especially maybe pertaining to the social justice movement. We see that a lot that there's things that you need to do. Now, should we have good works. Scripture absolutely speaks of that, but it is not the works that save you. Those are just an outpouring of the faith that you have. Yeah, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And I think this is a good word for maybe the people out there who have been raised Christians their whole life. It's so easy for that notion of works to start creeping into our thinking. And a lot of times it's good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's reading your Bible. It's going to church. It's going to church, yeah. These are things that, of course, they're wonderful things, but they're not what save you. They're not what make you a Christian. I love the example of the thief on the cross because he's like the quintessential example of works do not save you, right? There he is, led a horrible life, bad enough to be crucified, and at the very last moment of his life, he turns to Jesus asks to be saved, and Jesus says, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, bro. You know, unfortunately, because you didn't have the chance to go to church right. or because you really didn't memorize enough of scriptures from the Torah, you're just not going to be able to make it in. There was no requirement from Jesus for that guy to do anything other than believe. Yeah. And what a good word that is for us, right? Because it's not that we don't want to have love and the good works that just are fruits of the spirit that should be an outpouring of because we have been saved. But man, not getting those lines confused. And parents, man, I don't know if we got anybody out there that's a little type A like I am. But when we are type A and demanding like certain rules and different things, it's very interesting to see how our kids can start soaking that mentality up that it's all about following the rules. It's all about doing all the things right. Should they be doing those things? And should they be doing their chores and all the things? Yep, they totally should be. And they should be obeying and all of those things. But we can get into such a rule mentality, you know, and maybe this is partly you're hearing this mom because I just, I like to follow rules. And we've actually raised some kids that kind of like to follow rules. Not a bad thing. But make sure that that mentality doesn't transfer over into what they, how they're viewing their salvation. One thing I wanted to mention about the fruit works versus grace thing, because that can be a tricky one. And I remember really kind of wrestling with that in my mind, like, what, where is the line, Lord, between grace and works? And I'm saved by grace, but works should be there. And I was thinking about this the other day, actually, when I or heard somebody talking about it. And it's a little bit like water and a freezer. And, you know, we are the water. And when we are in Christ, it's like we are in the freezer. And what happens to water when it's in a freezer? It becomes ice. It is the natural byproduct of being in the freezer. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. And it's the same idea, I think, for believers with works. If we are saved, if we're truly saved, if we truly love Jesus— then the fruit that is going to come out of us, it's just going to happen naturally, like water in a freezer, that ice will come. I like that picture for what it looks like for good works to come out of the Christian's life really effortlessly. It is a natural byproduct of being in Christ. I think you can so see that pictured so well in John 15 when he talks about being, when he says, I am the true vine and talks about us just clinging to that vine. You don't really do anything. You're just hanging with the vine. And it's that whole concept of abiding. But that's a really good image. Maybe read John 15 if you want a little bit more context with that too. So there you have it, guys. Those are the essential doctrines. And again, this was not an exhaustive list by any means. These are the seven that we picked, but there are other things that are very foundational as well. And I really encourage you guys, wherever your local church is that you are plugged into, find out what their essential doctrines are that they abide by. Know what your church thinks on this. Know what you think about this. Turn the pages of your Bible and see what scripture says about these very foundational things, about the depravity of man, of who Jesus is, about the resurrection, about the cross. It's just really important that we have a very informed faith. I know that this was not a light episode. This was a whole lot of scripture. I get it. We're going to have all of these things in the notes. 
But even as I was tempted to not do an episode like this, because it is so much and this is pretty heavy, I just kept coming back to the fact that we just need this, guys. We need to know what the Bible says about these things. So I hope you hung in there with us and maybe write some scriptures down. Maybe have some good conversations in your house. Remember how it was Timothy's mother and grandmother that taught him in the scriptures. That's a high calling, ladies, but we have that. And so hopefully this kind of puts some things in your toolkit a little bit of being able to know what some of these essentials are. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.